Volume 1, Chapter 3 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, A Legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 1, Chapter 3. He comes at last in sullen loneliness, and whence they know not, why they need not guess. Lara. In those ages in which moral wrongs were chiefly repaired by superstition, and the slaves of the grosser passions believed that they were only to be rebuked by single acts of physical self-denial, the world often witnessed examples of men retiring from its allurements to caves and huts for the ostensible purposes of penitence and prayer. That this extraordinary pretension to godliness was frequently the cloak of ambition and deceit is certain, but it would be uncharitable to believe that, in common, it did not proceed from an honest, though it might be an ill-directed zeal. Hermitages are still far from infrequent in the more southern parts of Europe, though they are of rare occurrence in Germany. But previously to the change of religion which occurred in the 16th century, and consequently near the period of this tale, they were perhaps more often met with among the descendants of the northern race than among the more fervid fancies of the southern stock in that quarter of the world. It is a law of nature that the substances which most easily receive impressions are the least likely to retain them, and possibly there may be requisite a constancy and severity of character to endure the never-ending and mortifying exactions of the anchorite that were not so easily found among the volatile and happy children of the sun as among the sterner offspring of the regions of cold and tempests. Whatever may be said of the principles of him who thus abandoned worldly ease for the love of God, it is quite sure that in practice there were present and soothing rewards in this manner of life, that were not without strong attractions to morbid minds, especially to those in which the seeds of ambition were dormant rather than extinct, it was rare indeed that a recluse established himself in the vicinity of a simple and religious neighborhood, and few were they who sought absolute solitude without reaping a rich harvest of veneration and moral dependence among the untrained minds of his admirers. In this treacherous manner does vanity beset us in our strongholds of mental security, and he who has abandoned the world in the hope of leaving behind him those impulses which endangered his hopes, finds the enemy in a new shape, entrenched in the very citadel of his defenses. There is little merit, and commonly as little safety, in turning the back on any danger, and he has far less claims to the honors of a hero who outlives the contest in consequence of means so questionable than he who survives because he has given a mortal blow to his antagonist. The task assigned to man is to move among his fellows doing good, filling his part in the scale of creation, and escaping from none of the high duties which God has allotted to his being, and greatly should be grateful that while his service is arduous, he is not left without the powerful aid of that intelligence which controls the harmony of the universe. The anchorite of the cedars, as the recluse now visited by the monk and his accidental companions was usually termed by the peasants and by the burghers of Durkheim, had made his appearance about six months before the opening of our story, in the Ringmauer. Whence he had come, how long he intended to remain, and what had been his previous career were facts equally unknown to those among whom he so suddenly took up his abode. 
None had seen him arrive, nor could any say from what sources he drew the few articles of household furniture which were placed in his hut. They who left the camp untenanted one week on returning the next had found it occupied by a man, who had arranged one of the deserted buildings in a manner to shelter him from the storms, and who, by erecting a crucifix at his door, had sufficiently announced the motive of his retirement. It was usual to hail the establishment of a hermit in any particular district as a propitious event, and many were the hopes excited and plans of affecting temporal objects concocted by the intervention of the prayers of the stranger, before his presence had been known a fortnight. All within the influence of the name of the hermit except Emic of Leinigen and Hartenberg, the burgomasters of Durkheim and the monks of Limburg, heard of his arrival with satisfaction. The haughty and warlike baron had imbibed a standing prejudice against all devotees from an inherited enmity to the adjoining convent, which had contested the sovereignty of the valley with his family for ages, while the magistrates had a latent jealousy of every influence which custom and the laws had not rendered familiar. As to the monks, the secret of their distrust was to be found in that principle of human nature which causes us to dislike being outdone in any merit of which we make in a special profession even though superior godliness be its object. Until now, the abbot of Limburg was held to be the judge in the last resort of all intercessions between earth and heaven, and as his supremacy had the support of time, he had long enjoyed it in that careless security which lures so many of the prosperous to their downfall. These antipathies on the part of the honored and powerful might, to say the least, have rendered the life of an anchorite very uncomfortable, if not positively insecure, were it not for the neutralizing effect of the antagonistic forces which were set in motion. Opinion deepened by the superstition held its shield over the humble hut and month after month glided away after the arrival of the stranger, during which he received no other testimonials of the feelings excited by his presence. An accidental communication with Burkhold was ripened into intimacy. And, as will be seen in the course of the narrative, there were others to whom his counsel, or his motives, or his prayers were not indifferent. The latter fact was made sufficiently apparent to those who, on account of their mutual distrust, now presented themselves with less ceremony than usual, at the threshold of the hut. The light within came from a faggot which was burning on the rude hearth, but it was quite strong enough to show the monk and his companions that the anchorite was not alone. Their footsteps had evidently been heard, and a female had time to arise from her knees and to arrange her mantle in such a manner as effectually to conceal her countenance. The hurried action was scarcely completed when the Benedictine darkened the door with his gloomy robes, while Burkhold and his friends stood gazing over his shoulders with lively curiosity mingled with surprise. The form and countenance of the anchorite were those of middle age, his eye had lost nothing of its quickness or intelligence, though his movements had the deliberation and care that long experience insensibly interweaves in the habits of those who have not lived in vain. He expressed neither concern nor wonder at the unexpected visits, but regarding his guests earnestly, like one who assured himself of their identity, he mildly motioned for all to enter. There was jealous suspicion in the glance of the Benedictine as he complied. For until now, he had no reason to believe that the recluse was usurping so intimate and so extensive an influence over the minds of the young, as the presence of the unknown female would give reason to believe. I know that thou wert of holy life and constant prayer, venerable hermit, 
he said in a tone that questioned in more than one meaning of the term. But until this moment, I had not thought thee vested with the church's power to hearken to the transgressions of the faithful and to forgive sins. The latter is an office, brother, that of rights belong only to God. The head of the church himself is but an humble instrument of faith in discharge of this solemn trust. The countenance of the monk did not become more amicable at this reply, nor did he fail to cast a scrutinizing glance at the muffled form of the stranger in a fruitless endeavor to recognize her person. Thou hast not even the tonsure, he continued while his uneasy eye rolled from that of the recluse to the form of the stranger who had shrunk as far as the narrow place would permit from observation. Thou seest, father, I have all the hair that time and infirmities have left me. But is it thought in thy beneficed and warlike abbey that the advice of one who has lived long enough to know and to lament his own errors can injure the less experienced? If unhappily I may have deceived myself, thou art timely present, reverend monk, to repair the wrong. Let the maiden come to the confessional of the abbey church. If distrust or apprehension weigh upon her mind, doubt it not, she will find great comfort in the experiment. As I will testify from many trials, abruptly interposed the cowherd who advanced intrusively between the two devotees in a manner to occupy all their attention. Go upon the hill, and ease thy soul, Gottlieb, is my good and venerable mother in the practice of saying, whenever my opinion of myself is getting to be too humble, and discourse with some of the godly fathers of the abbey, whose wisdom and unction will not fail to lighten thy heart of even a heavier load. There is Father Ulrich, he is a paragon of virtue and self-denial, and Father Kuno is even more edifying and salutary than he while Father Siegfried is more balmy to a soul than the most reverend abbot, the virtuous and pious Father Bonifacius himself. Whatever thou doest, child, go upon the hill and enter boldly into the church like a loaded and oppressed sinner as thou art, and especially seek counsel and prayer from the excellent and beloved Father Siegfried. And thou, who art thou? demanded the half-doubting monk that thou speakest of me in terms that I so little merit to my face. I would I were Lord Emic of Hartenburg, or for that matter, the Elector Palatine himself, in order to do justice to those I honor, in which case certain fathers of Limburg should have a special favor, and that quickly, too, after my own flesh and blood. Who am I, father? I wonder that a face so often seen at the confessional should be forgotten. What there is of me to boast of, Father Siegfried? is of thine own forming. But it is no cause of surprise that thou dost not recall me to mind, since the meek and lowly of spirit are sure to forget their own good works. Thou callest thyself Gottlieb, but the name belongs to many Christians. More bear it, reverend monk, than know how to do it honor. There is Gottlieb Frinka, as errant and knave in any Durkheim, and Gottlieb Pop might have more respect for his baptismal vow. And as for Lord Gottlob of Mannheim, we will overlook the transgressions of the remainder of thy namesakes for the good that thou thyself hast done, interrupted the Benedictine, who, having insensibly yielded to the unction of flattery in the commencement of the interview, began now to be ashamed of the weakness as the fluent cowherd poured forth his words in a manner to excite some suspicion of the quality of praise that came from such a source. Come to me when thou wilt, son, and such counsel as a weak head, but... 
a sincere heart can render shall not be withheld. How this would lighten the heart of my old mother to hear! Gottlob, would she say, what has become of thy companion and of the maiden? hastily demanded the Benedictine. As the part of the cowherd was successfully performed, he stood aside with an air of well-acted simplicity and amazement, leaving the discourse to be pursued between the recluse and the monk. Thy guests have suddenly left us, continued the latter, after satisfying himself by actual observation that no one remained in the hut but himself, its regular occupant, and the honey-tongued Gottlob. And, as it would seem, in company. They are gone, as they came, voluntarily and without question. Thou knowest them by frequent visits, holy hermit? Father, I question none. Were the elector Friedrich to come into my abode, he would be welcome, and this cowherd is not less so. To both at parting I merely say, God speed ye. Thou keepest the cattle of the burghers, Gottlob? I keep a herd, reverend priest, such as my masters please to trust my care. We have grave cause of complaint against one of thy fellows who serves the Count of Hartenburg and who is in the daily habit of trespassing on the pastures of the church. Dost thou know the hind? Potstausen! If all the knaves who do these wrongs when out of sight of their masters were set in a row before the eyes of the most reverend abbot of Limburg, he would scarce know whether to begin with prayers or stripes, and they say he is a potent priest at need with both. I sometimes tremble for my own conduct, though no one can have a better opinion of himself than I, poor and lonely as I stand in your reverend presence. For a hard fortune and some oversight in the management of my father's affairs have brought me to the need of living among such associates. Were I not of approved honesty, there might be more beasts on the abbey lands, and they, who now pass their time in fasting and sheer humility, might come to the practice of sheer necessity. The Benedictine examined the meek countenance of Gottlob with a keen, distressful eye. He next invited the hermit to bestow his blessing, and then, motioning for the hind to retire, he entered on the real subject of his visit to the hermitage. We shall merely say at this point of the narrative that the moment was extremely critical to all who dwelt in the Palatinate of the Rhine. The elector had, perhaps imprudently for a prince of his limited resources, taken an active part in the vindictive warfare then raging, and serious reverses threatened to endanger not only his tranquility, but his throne. It was a consequence of the feudal system, which then so generally prevailed in Europe, that internal disorder succeeded any manifest, though it might be only a temporary derangement of the power of the potentate that held the right of sovereignty over the infinite number of petty rulers who, at that period, weighed particularly heavy on Germany. To them he was the law, for they were not apt to acknowledge any supremacy that did not come supported by the strong hand. The ascending scale of rulers, including baron, count, landgrave, margrave, duke, elector, and king, up to the nominal head of state, the emperor himself, with the complicated and varied interest embracing allegiance within allegiance, and duty upon duty, was likely in itself to lead to dissension, had the imperial crown been one of far more refined and positive influence than it was. But uncertain and indirect in the application of its means, it was rare that any very serious obstacle to tranquility was removed without the employment of positive force. 
No sooner was the emperor involved in a serious struggle than the great princes endeavored to recover that balance which had been lost by the long ascendancy of a particular family, while the minor princes seldom saw themselves surrounded with external embarrassment. That internal discord did not come to increase the evil. As a vassal was commonly but a rude reflection of his lord's enmities and prejudices, the reader will have inferred from the language of the cowherd that the affairs were not on the most amicable footing between those near neighbors, the abbot of Limburg and the count of Hartenburg. The circumstance of their existing so near each other was, of itself, almost a certain cause of rivalry, to which natural motive of contention may be added the unremitted strife between the influence of superstition and the dread of the sword. The visit of the monk had reference to certain interests connected with the actual state of things, as they existed between the abbey and the castle. As it would be premature, however, to expose his object, we shall be content with saying that the conference between the priest and the hermit lasted for half an hour, when the former took his leave, craving a blessing from one of a life so pure and self-denying as his host. At the door of the hut, the monk found Gottlieb, who had been gotten rid of, it will be remembered, but who, for reasons of his own, had seen fit to await the termination of the conference. "'Thou here, son?' exclaimed the Benedictine. "'I had thought thee at peace in thy bed, "'favored with the benediction of a hermit so holy. "'Good fortune is sure to drive sleep from my eyes, father,' "'returned Gottlieb, dropping in by the side of the monk "'who was walking through the cedars "'toward the ancient gateway of the camp. "'I am not of your animal kind. "'That is no sooner filled with a good thing "'than it lies down to rest. "'But the happier I become, "'the more I desire to be up and enjoy it.' Thy wish is natural, and although many natural desires are to be resisted, I do not see the danger of our knowing our own happiness. Of the danger I will say nothing, father, but of the comfort, there is not a youth in Durkheim who can speak with greater certainty than myself. Gottlieb, said the Benedictine, insensibly edging nearer to his companion like one willing to communicate confidentially, since thou namest Durkheim, canst say aught of the humor of its people in this manner of contention between our holy abbot and Lord Emich of Hartenburg? Were I to tell thy reverence the truth that lies deepest in my mind, it would be to say that the burghers wish to see the affair brought to an end, in such a way as to leave no doubt, hereafter, to which party they owe most obedience and love, since they find it a little hard upon their zeal to have so large demands of these services made by both parties. Thou canst not serve God and mammon, son, so saith one who could not deceive. And so saith reason too, worshipful monk, but to give thee at once my inmost soul, I believe there is not a man in our Durkheim who believes himself strong enough in learning to say in this strife of duties which is God and which is mammon. How do they call in question our sacred mission, our divine embassy, in short, our being what we are? No man is so bold as to say that the monks of Limburg are what they are. That might be irreverent to the church and indecent to Father Siegfried. And the most we dare to say is that they seem to be what they are. And that is no small matter, considering the way things go in this world. Seem to be, Gottlieb, said my poor father. And thou wilt escape envy and enemies. For in this seemliness there is nothing so alarming to others. It is only when one is really the thing itself that men begin to find fault. If thou wishest to live peaceably with thy neighbors, push nothing beyond seeming to be, for that much all will bear, since all can seem. 
whereas being oftentimes sets a whole village in an uproar. It is wonderful the virtue there is in seeming, and heartburnings and scandal, aye, and the downright quarrels there are in being just what one seems. No, the most we say in Durkheim is that the monks of Limburg seem to be men of God. And Lord Emick? As to Count Emick, father, we hold it wise to remember he is a great noble. The elector has not a bolder knight, nor the emperor a truer vassal. We say, therefore, that he seems to be brave and loyal. Thou makest great account, son, of these apparent qualities. Knowing the frailty of man, father, and the great likelihood of error, when we wish to judge of acts and reasons that lie deeper than our knowledge, we hold it to be the most prudent. No, let us of Durkheim alone, as men of caution. For a cowherd, thou wantest not wit. Canst read? By God's favor, Providence put that little accident in my way when a child, Reverend Monk, and I picked it up as I might swallow a sweet morsel. Tis a gift more likely to injure than to serve one of thy calling. The art can do little benefit to thy herd. I will not take upon myself to say that any of the cattle are much the better for it, though to deal fairly by thee, Reverend Benedictine, there are animals among them that seem to be. How? Wilt thou attempt to show a fact not only improbable but impossible? Go to. Thou hast fallen upon some silly work of a jester. There have been numberless of these commissions of the devil poured forth since the discovery of that imprudent brother of mine's. I would gladly hear in what manner a beast can profit by the art of printing. Thy patience, Father Siegfried, and thou shalt know. Now here is a hind that can read, and there is one that cannot. We will suppose them both the servants of Emic of Hardenburg. Well, they go forth of a morning with their herds, this taking the path to the hills of the Count, and that, having read the description of the boundaries between the Lord's land and that of the holy abbot of Limburg, taking another, because learning will not willingly follow ignorance, whereupon the reader reaches a nearer and better pasture than he who hath gone about to feed upon ground that has only been trodden upon too often before by hoof of beast and foot of man. Thy learning hath not much toward clearing thy head, Gottlob, whatever it may have done for the condition of thy herd. If your worship has any doubts of my being what I say, here is proof of its justice then. I know nothing that so crams a man and confuses him as learning. He who has but one horn can take it and go his way, whereas he that hath many may lose his herd while choosing between instruments that are better or worse. He that hath but one sword will draw it and slay his enemy, but he that hath much armor may lose his life while putting on his buckler or headpiece. I had not thought thee so skillful in answers. And thou thinkest the good people of Durkheim will stand neuter between the abbey and the count? Father, if thou wilt show me by which side they will be the greatest gainers, I think I might venture to say with some certainty on which side they will be likely to draw the sword. Our burghers are prudent townsmen, as I have said, and it is not often that they are found fighting against their own interests. Thou shouldest know, son, that he who is most favored in this life may find the balances of justice weighing against him in the next, while he who suffers in the flesh will be most likely to find its advantage in the spirit. Himmel! In this case, Reverend Benedictine, the most holy abbot of Limburg himself may fare worse hereafter than a hind that now lives like a dog, exclaimed Gottlieb with an air of admiration and simplicity that completely misled his listener. 
The one is said to comfort the body in various ways and to know the difference between a cup of pure Rhenish and a draft of washy liquors that come from the other side of our mountains. While the other, whether it be of necessity or inclination, I will not take upon myself to say, drinks only of the spring. Tis a million of pities that one never knoweth which to choose, present ease with future pain, or starving body with a happy soul. Believe me, Father Siegfried, were thy reverence to think more of these trials that befall us ignorant youths. Thou wouldst not deal so heavily with the penances, as thine own severe virtue often tempts thee to do. What is thus done is done for thy health, future and present. By chastening the spirit in this manner, it is gradually prepared for its final purification, and thou art not a loser in the eyes of thy fellows by leading a chaste life. Thou wilt have justice at the settlement of the great account. Nay, I am no greedy creditor to done providence for my dues. I very well know that what will come cannot be prevented, and therefore I take patience to be a virtue. But I hope these accounts of which you tell us so often are kept with sufficient respect for a poor man. For to deal fairly with thee, Father, we have not over much favor in settling those of the world. Thou hast credit for all thy good deeds with thy fellows, Gottlob. I wish it were true. To me it seems that the world is ready enough to charge, while it is as niggardly as a miser in giving credit. I never did an evil act, and as we are all mortal and frail, most holy monk, these accidents will befall even your saint or a benedictine, that the deed itself and all its consequences were not set down against me in letters that a short-sighted man might read. While most of my merits, and considering I am but a cowherd, they are of respectable quality, seem to be forgotten. Now your abbot, or his highness, the elector, or even Count Emic. <laughs> the summer landgrave, interrupted the monk laughing. Summer or winter as thou wilt. Father Siegfried, he is Count of Hartenburg and a noble of Leinigen. Even he does no deed of charity or even of simple justice, that all men do not seize upon the occasion to proclaim it as eagerly as they endeavor to upbraid me for the accidental loss of a beast, or any other little backsliding that may befall one, who, being bold under the holy instruction, sometimes stumbles against a sin." Thou art a casuist, and at another time I must look more closely into the temper of thy mind. At present thou mayest purchase favor of the church by enlisting a little more closely in her interests. I remember thy cleverness and thy wit, Gottlob, for both have been remarked in thy visits to the convent. But until this moment there has not been sufficient reason to use the latter in the manner that we may fairly claim to do. Considering our frequent prayers and the other consolations afforded in thy behalf, do not be too particular, Father Siegfried, for thy words reveal grievous penance, which may be much mitigated in future, if not entirely avoided by a service that I would now propose to thee, honest Gottlob, and by which I will venture to say, from my knowledge of thy reverence for holy things, as is manifest in thy attentions to the pious hermit, and thy love for the Abbey of Limburg, thou would not refuse to undertake. So, nay, I have as good as pledged myself to Father Bonifacius to procure either thee or one shrewd and faithful as thee, to do a trusty service for the brotherhood. The latter might not be easy among the cowherds, of that I am sure. 
Thy skill in the management of the beasts may yet gain thee the office of tending the ample herds of the abbey. Thou art already believed fit for the charge. Not to deny my own merits, sagacious father, I have already some knowledge of the pastures. And of the beasts too, Gottlieb, we keep good note of the characters of all who come to our confessionals. There are worse than thine among them, I do assure thee. And yet I have never told thee half I might say of myself, father. It is not important now. Thou knowest the state of the contest between Count Emic and our abbey. The service that I ask of thee, son, is this, and by discharging it with thy wonted readiness, believe me thou wilt gain favor with St. Benedict and his children. We have had reason to know that there is a strong band of armed men in the castle ready and anxious to assail our walls under a vain belief that they contain riches and stores to repay the sacrilege. But we want precise knowledge of their numbers and intentions. Were we to send one of our known pursuits on this errand, the Count would find means to mislead him. Whereas we think a hind of thy intelligence might purchase the church's kindness without suspicion. Were Count Emech to get wind of the matter, he would not leave me an ear with which to listen to thy holy admonitions. Keep thy own counsel, and he will not suspect one of thy appearance. Hast no pretext for visiting the castle? Nay, it would be easy to make a thousand. Here I might say I wish to ask the cowherd of Lord Emick for his cunning in curing diseased hooves, or I might pretend to wish to change my service, or there is no want of laughing damsels in and about the hold. Enough. Thou art he, Gottlob, for whom I have sought daily for a fortnight. Go thy way, then, without fail, and seek me after tomorrow's mass in the abbey. It may be enough on the side of heaven, father, but men of our prudence must not forget their mortal state. Am I to risk my ears, do discredit to my simplicity, and neglect my herd without a motive? Thou wilt serve the church, son. Get favor in the eyes of our reverend abbot, and thy courage and dexterity will be remembered in future indulgences. That I shall serve the church, it is well known to me, reverend Benedictine, and it is a privilege of which a cowherd hath reason to be proud. But by serving the church, I shall make enemies on earth for two sufficient reasons. First, that the church is in no great esteem in this valley. And second, because men never love a friend for being any better than themselves. No, Gottlob, used my excellent father to say, seem to all around thee conscious of thy unworthiness, after which thou mayest be what thou seemest. On this condition, only can virtue live at peace with its fellow creatures. But I, thou wouldest have the respect of mankind, would he say, set a fair price on all thou doest, for the world will give thee credit for disinterestedness, and if thou workest for naught, it will think thou deservest not. No, did he shake his head and add, that which cometh easy is little valued, while that which is costly do men set a price upon. Thy father was like thyself, one that looked to his ease. Thou knowest we inhabitants of cells do not carry silver. Nay, righteous Benedictine, if it were a trifle of gold, I am not one to break a bargain for so small a difference. Thou shalt have gold, then, on the faith of my holy calling. I will give thee an image of the emperor in gold, shouldst thou succeed in bringing the tidings we require. Gottlob stopped short, and kneeling, he reverently asked the monk to bless him. 
The latter complied, half doubting the discretion of employing such an emissary between whose cunning and simplicity he was completely at fault. Still, as he risked nothing except in the nature of the information he was to receive, he saw no sufficient reason for recalling the commission he had just bestowed. He gave the desired benediction, therefore, and our two conspirators descended the mountain in company, discoursing as they went of the business on which the cowherd was about to proceed. When so near the road as to be in danger of observation, they separated, each taking the direction necessary to his object. End of Volume 1, Chapter 3 Read by Joel Kendrick